think, I think it's an interesting thing to, to sing and to think and to read about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it makes me want to cry when I think about it. Uh, when I think about him suffering in the way he did, knowing that he didn't deserve any of that, that he was the spotless lamb of God, who was without sin, and yet was beaten like a criminal, tortured like a murderer, crucified. Makes me want to cry when I think about it. And, and at the same time, it makes me want to smile to know that this is the grace of God. This is the love of God. This is the justice of God coming together in one place. This is the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose the third day according to the scriptures. That's a bizarre mix of emotions when we encounter the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to look at it closely today. You have your Bible this morning? Good. Romans chapter 3 where you need to go. This is our third week looking at this passage in Romans that is really the turning point in the letter. We're moving from the darkness of human depravity and sin and the subsequent wrath of God, judgment of God. We're moving from that dark place into the light of the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. On week one, in looking at this text, we talked at length about the doctrine of justification. We define justification as the legal declaration where God pronounces us righteous and counts the righteousness of Christ to us as if it were really ours. This amazing gift is totally of grace, right? It's not something we deserve. It's not something that is based on our practical, lived-out righteousness. It is a gift that we receive by faith, and that's what we talked about the second week. We talked about how we receive this justification. The means of justification is faith, not works of the law, not good deeds, but faith. Not general faith in God, but specific faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about how it's more than mere knowledge. It's more than mere approval or acceptance of that knowledge. It's about trust. It's about, as Laura said, resting our whole weight on Jesus and depending entirely upon him and what he has done for us on the cross and the empty tomb. We gave this picture from the mission field of a man who was trying to translate the Bible into a foreign tongue, a language that didn't have a word for faith, didn't have a word for trust, didn't have a word for dependence. And a local man came running into the missionary's hut, plopped himself down on a chair and said to the missionary, it is so good, it feels so good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And the missionary said, that's it, that's, that's what faith is, that's what dependence is. And we began to talk to them about trusting in Jesus like that. And a fear, we talked about this last week, a fear that many people in this room today could honestly say of Jesus, I know about him like a man would about a chair. I know that that's a chair. Like I understand and I get that that's a chair. And maybe even some people would take the next step and say, I know that if a person were to sit in that chair, it would hold their weight. I approve that that chair is worthy to hold the weight, but I think that's as far as a lot of people maybe in this room have gone. They've said, yeah, I know about Jesus, and I know that if a person really trusted Jesus for salvation that they would be saved. But what we're calling you to do is to really sit in the chair, to really trust in Jesus Christ, to rest your whole weight upon him, to stop your work as if you could be justified by works of the law. To stop your own self-righteousness as if somehow you could earn the favor of God by your good deeds. 
of simply to rest your whole weight in Jesus and trust him and receive from him by faith the righteousness, perfect righteousness of God accounted to your account as if it were really yours. We talked about justification as the goal. We talked about faith, personal faith as the means by which we receive justification. And today we're going to talk about the basis of all of this. Today we're going to ask the question, how can God be just and holy and yet declare sinners to be righteous? How can this possibly work? If God is so righteous and so holy, how could he possibly look at a sinner and say, you are righteous? And the answer to that question is simple. It's the cross. It's the cross. It's because of the cross God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. One scholar posed the question this way. He said, how is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? That's a lot of usage of the word righteousness, right? And he said the answer is simple. It is the cross. Another scholar went a little further and he said the question that we should be asking is not how can God justly judge anyone? The question is not how can God justly judge anyone. The question is how can God justly forgive anyone? And there are a lot of people in the church today appalled at the concept that God would justly judge anyone. It shouldn't appall us at all. It shouldn't surprise us at all. It shouldn't make us uncomfortable. That makes perfect sense, that a holy God, a righteous God, would judge sinners. That's the only thing that makes sense. What should appall us is that a righteous and holy God would forgive sinners. How can he do that? How can he do that and maintain his justice? How can he do that and maintain his righteousness? And the answer is this beautiful picture of the cross, where both his love and his justice come together and are demonstrated fully. And that's what we want to look at today. We want to look at the cross. We want to think deeply about the cross today. We want to respond properly to the cross today. Look at it in this text. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. God's word. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, help us. Help us today to see you more clearly. Help us to understand and know you more. Help us to see your love. Help us to see your justice. Help us to learn more about you and respond with more praise to you. Help us to learn more about the gospel and respond by wanting to share it more. 
just lead us to the cross. Lead us to the foot of the cross and help us see clearly and respond properly to your work, your work of redemption, your work of propitiation, your work of salvation. So if you haven't picked up on this over the last few weeks, we're, we're dealing with this text a little differently than we normally deal with the text. Usually we just kind of plow through and talk about the words and the phrases and the sentences and what does this text mean and how does it apply to our lives. We usually approach the text expositionally. Uh, we've been over the last couple of weeks approaching it a little bit differently, more systematically. What does this text teach us about justification and what is the biblical doctrine of justification in general? Last week we said, what does this text teach us about faith? What is the biblical doctrine of faith in general? And this week we'll talk about propitiation, about redemption, about expiation, about the cross, and what does the Bible teach us about the cross. And then as we move out of this text into the rest of Romans, we'll see all of those big ideas expounded upon with great detail, and we'll look at them closely from the text. So this is systematic. Usually it's expositional, but I think it's important as we lay a foundation for what is ahead. So as we engage this text today, we want to ask this first question. What is it? that led to Christ coming to earth and dying for our sins. What is it? What compelled this whole action? What is it that led to Christ coming to earth and dying for our sins? And I think the easy answer to that question is God's love. God's love. I think 90% of us in this room would immediately go to, why did, why did Jesus come? Because God loves us. And oh, that's so true, is it not? In the cross, we see the love of God on display, and it is a beautiful thing. But it's not just love that's on display in the cross. In fact, it's not love that is the primary focus in this text when we talk about the cross. It is the justice of God also. So what is it that led to Christ coming to earth and dying for our sins? It is the love of God, and it is also the justice of God. The justice of God. There's a problem, a cosmic problem. If God is going to redeem sinners, there's a problem. How can he remain righteous and just and still do that? And we'll see that his justice is on display in the cross. One of the scholars I was reading was saying, well, what if we get into debate about which is more important? Which is more important in this grand scheme of things? Is the love of God primary or is the justice of God primary? And he says, that's a silly question to ask. Because if it were not for his love, there would be no payment of the debt. And if it were not for his justice, there would be no payment of the debt. Does that make sense to you? So it, it is required that God be both loving and just, and both are on display in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this text says it this way in verse 26, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look closely today about the justice of God as, what, as part of what led to Christ coming to earth and dying for our sins. So we want to think today about the work of Christ. What did Jesus do on the cross? What did Jesus do in coming to the earth? If you look at this in systematic theology, you'll see the work of Christ broken into two different parts. One would be his obedience for us, and the other would be his suffering for us. And we're not going to talk at great length today about his obedience for us, but we do need to mention it because we've talked a lot about justification being the declaration of, of righteousness counted to our account. We've talked about imputation being the righteousness of Christ being credited to our account. And it is important that we understand that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, right? 
that he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And so the righteousness that belongs to Christ that is credited to our account is perfect and complete righteousness. Maybe the best way to explain that would be if Jesus had died on the cross for our sins when he was six years old, it might be a different story, right? But Jesus grew up and he lived a life. And the scripture says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, right? Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so we see his obedience for us. And that has to do with imputation. The righteousness that is given to us in justification is a perfect righteousness. The righteousness of Christ because part of his work was obedience for us. But in this text, we're focusing not on his obedience for us, but his suffering for us. And we want to think deeply about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Systematic theologians will point out four aspects of Christ's suffering on our behalf. The first one is the one that comes to mind most easily. It would be the physical pain and death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. The physical pain and the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. We could talk at great length about this, right? And you've heard this kind of stuff before, right? You've, you've heard about the cat of nine tails, the lashes that Jesus received at the hands of the Romans. You've heard about that weapon, right? those straps of leather that had a piece of clay or a piece of metal on the end, and they would dig it into his back and then pull it off. It wasn't so much like a whip that would just make a small cut. It was like, it was like daggers that would be driven into his back and then yanked off chunks of flesh. Most people, most people did not survive the scourging, and Jesus took all of the lashes that were allowed for such a scourging, and he lived. We can imagine that kind of suffering, that kind of physical suffering. We can imagine um, the, the suffering of the crown of thorns that was placed on his head, and not like it was placed gently. Scripture says they took rods and beat it into his head. We can talk about the physical suffering of Jesus when they put that purple robe on him. When they put that purple robe on him for a time, a robe that was made purple by an acidic dye that would have been painful on the open wounds. That robe that was left on those open wounds on his back for just long enough that scabs began to form just before they pulled the robe back off of him, opening those wounds again. We could talk about his physical suffering as they plucked his beard out. We could talk about the physical suffering of the cross all day. In fact, it is absolutely chilling to read a medical account of crucifixion in the first century and how exactly a person died when they were crucified. It's terrible, and it has very little to do with nails. It's a slow, painful, humiliating, embarrassing death by suffocation, essentially. But the person was suspended on a cross by nails through their wrists and through their ankles, hanging from these wounds, unable to breathe, only able to breathe by either pulling themselves up and pushing on the nails through their ankles or letting themselves down. There was no relief from it at all. People didn't die on a cross because of blood loss. They didn't die on a cross because of wounds. They suffocated to death on a cross, straining for each breath. We could talk at great length about the physical pain and death of Jesus' suffering. But there's another aspect of his suffering. And that's the pain of his bearing our sin. As Jesus is on the cross, Scripture says clearly that he bore our sins, that our sins were placed on him. Both of the texts that, that uh, 
Matt and Miss Ann read this morning talk about that, that our sins were placed on him, that the one who had never been guilty before of anything was suddenly guilty of everything. And we can relate to this on a very small scale. You know what it's like to feel guilty? You, you know what it's like when you've done something and you know you shouldn't have and that just overwhelming sense of guilt? You know that feeling? i tell you where I feel it, right here in my stomach. This sickening feeling of guilt when I know I've done something wrong. We can relate to that sense of guilt only on a small scale because we are guilty all the time. We deserve that guilt. Jesus did not. He had never done anything wrong at all. He had never felt that pain before, and yet our sins were placed on him. Our sins were credited to his account, just like his righteousness is credited to our account. Imputation is a two-way street, and Jesus bore our sins. Jesus bore our sins as if they were his very own. And he felt the pain bearing our sins. The third aspect of the pain that Jesus experienced, the suffering he experienced on the cross is abandonment. It's this incredible scene. Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a reference to Psalm 22, which teaches us a lot about the suffering of the Messiah. But it is also a statement of this abandonment that Jesus experienced on the cross. You know something about abandonment, don't you? You know something on a small scale about abandonment when someone you love turns their back on you, when someone you care about deeply walks away from you, that feeling of separation and loneliness and hurt. You know something about that on a small scale, don't you? Imagine Jesus experiencing that for the first time in all of eternity, having lived for all of eternity in perfect community, in perfect relationship with his Father, pre-existing all of us, right? Pre-existing all of creation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwelling together in perfect community and perfect harmony. And then comes the day that Jesus bears our sin, he bears our guilt, and the Father turns away from him. And there is separation between the Father and the Son for the first time in all of eternity. Jesus had never known that before. Sure, he had known abandonment from his friends. Sure, he had known abandonment from the crowd. But from the Father? Can you imagine the pain of that? Some of you have experienced that very thing. The Father. The Father walking away from the Son. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that kind of pain. On this earth, I can't imagine that kind of pain. Well, I want you to know that Jesus felt it way more than that. Eternally, the Father walked away from his Son. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We sing a song that says, he suffered and died alone. Alone. Talking about the pain and the suffering of the cross, we've got to think about the physical pain. We've got to think about the pain of bearing sin. We've got to think about the pain of abandonment. But maybe more than anything, we need to think about the pain of bearing the wrath of God. Scripture teaches clearly that Jesus bore our guilt. And Scripture teaches also clearly that he suffered the wrath that we deserve. That what killed Jesus was not nails, it was not suffocation, it was not a crown of thorns. What killed Jesus was the wrath of God against sin. Not his sin, but our sin. You get that, right? 
that the full measure of the wrath of God, the entire cup of the wrath of God was poured out on him. And that's why he died. He bore the wrath of God. One scholar said it this way, Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God has patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. He drank the cup down to the last drop, the wrath of God. What do you think about when you think about the wrath of God? I think a lot of us have a very low view of the wrath of God. We have this picture of some kind of beating, maybe a scourging, maybe some kind of physical pain or something like that. I would submit to you that we know very little about the wrath of God. We have a low view of the wrath of God. Scripture teaches us that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. And Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. What was going on on the cross? Jesus was suffering not just physical pain, not just physical death, not just suffering by bearing our sins and feeling the guilt, not just suffering by having the Father turn his back on him, but he is suffering the wrath of God, bearing the wrath of God for our sins. That's what's going on on the cross. It's not pretty. It's way worse than we could ever imagine. But it's for a purpose. And this is the good news. So when I think about his suffering, I want to cry I want to be moved to tears, and I want to think, oh, he does not deserve this. But I always want to remember that he is doing this on purpose. He is in control as he is suffering for our sins, and it is for a reason he's doing this, for the salvation of the world. And so we talk about the cross and the suffering, but we also want to talk about the purpose. And when we talk about the purpose, we get to a concept that theologians call penal substitution. That there is a penalty that must be paid, and the good news is there is a substitute who paid it in our place. Penal substitutionary atonement is what we're talking about here, and that might win you, that might win you a pie piece in Trivial Pursuit someday, but it also may save your life for all of eternity. If you engage this properly, if God would speak this to your heart, if he would open your eyes to see that what you deserve, Jesus stepped in and took. We'll look at some other theories of the atonement in small group Bible study next Sunday. We'll show that all those other theories of the atonement make zero sense unless, unless Jesus is our substitute, unless he died in our place. Like one of the theories is that the cross is just exemplary, that what's going on the cross is not substitutionary atonement. What's going on on the cross is just an example of how we should live our lives, that we should be willing to lay down our lives for each other. Well, I believe that that is part of what's going on on the cross, that Jesus is showing us what love really looks like and how we should love one another. But that only makes any sense if he's also laying his life down for us. If he's actually accomplishing our salvation on the cross, then it is exemplary. If it's just exemplary, it doesn't make any sense at all. Other people would say, oh, it's, it's simply, exclusively a demonstration of God's love, that the cross is exclusively a demonstration of God's love. Well, it is a demonstration of his love because it is substitutionary atonement. Like, it's not just love. In fact, this one scholar was talking about that, and he said, he said, if you believe it's just love, it would be like two people walking along a river, a rushing river, whitewater rapids, and you saying to the person you're walking with, I want to show you how much I love you, and you just jump in the river and drown to death. The scholar went on to say, if I did that, you would think I was either mentally unstable 
or a psychopath. Let me just, let me show you, let me show you how much I love you, and I'll just jump in the river and drown. But if you're in the river drowning, if you're in the river drowning, and I say, let me show you how much I love you, and I jump in the river and save you at the cost of my own life, then that's love. Otherwise, it's just crazy. So all of the other theories of the atonement only make sense if they are linked to substitutionary atonement. If they are linked to Jesus paying the penalty for us. So let's track along those lines and see that all of this suffering that he experienced that we just talked about is suffering that we deserve. All right, so track with me. Number one, we deserve to die as a penalty for sin, right? You believe that? We're going to learn that in Romans uh, chapter 6. The wages of sin is death, right? We deserve to die as the penalty for sin. But Jesus died for us, right? Jesus died for us, and the word we would use theologically to describe that is sacrifice. We deserve to die as a penalty for sin. Jesus is the sacrifice who died in our place. That's the way sacrifice has always worked, right? It was never that a goat had done something bad and deserved to die. It was never that a bull had done something bad and deserved to die, right? It was always that God's people had done something bad and deserved to die, and yet a substitute died in their place. But the author of Hebrews would tell us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot, cannot cleanse us from our sin, but the blood of Jesus does. The once for all sacrifice of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. So we deserve to die as penalty for our sins, and yet Jesus died voluntarily as a sacrifice for us. He is the one who died in our place. That's part of the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. Secondly, we talked about Jesus bearing the wrath of God against sin. Does Jesus deserve the wrath of God against sin? Well, we deserve the wrath of God for sin, right? We deserve to bear, to drink the full measure of the cup of the wrath of God. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin, but Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin. And the theological word that we use here is not sacrifice, but it is a word, a big word, a dynamite word, a word that you should love and cherish, a word that is propitiation. You say that with me, propitiation. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Propitiation. Now define it for me. <laughs> yeah, sacrifice of atonement is basically what it is. One scholar says propitiation is this. A sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin and thereby turns God's favor, God's wrath, into favor. So the concept is this, that God must punish sin. He must punish sin. Because of his righteousness, because of his justice, because of his holiness, he must punish sin. That his wrath must be satisfied. He cannot just say, oh, that sin didn't happen. Oh, I'm just going to look the other way as if that didn't exist. No, that would transgress his own righteousness. He would cease to be God if he did that. He must punish sin. Propitiation is the sacrifice, the sacrifice that absorbs that sin in the place of someone else so that God no longer looks at us with anger and wrath. He looks at us with favor because his wrath has been satisfied through a substitute. That's propitiation. Simple, right? It is not simple, but it is absolutely beautiful. One scholar said it this way, sin provokes wrath. We understand that. Righteous judgment involves wrath. We understand that. Therefore, propitiation is necessary. Jesus dying under the wrath of God is necessary for men and women to be saved because God's wrath must be satisfied. We sing a song about that. 
and say, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You should sing that with the biggest smile on your face in the world. Because Jesus took the wrath in our place. He was the substitute who took the wrath that we deserve. And we call that propitiation. So we deserve to die as penalty for sin. Jesus dies in our place as sacrifice. We deserve to bear the wrath of God against sin. Jesus suffers the wrath of God against sin as our substitute. We call that propitiation. Third, we are separated from God because of sin. This separation, this abandonment is what we deserve because of sin. And Jesus, Jesus experiences that for us in our place, not so, not so that we can remain separated from God, but so that we can be reconciled to God. Catch that? Like Jesus is separated from God on our behalf so that we may be brought back to God. We sing a song that says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well, right? Only because of God's grace. This is the picture that we paint. We deserve the abandonment, but Jesus took the abandonment for us to bring us into fellowship with God. Jesus was separated from God so that we could be reunited with him, and we call this, we call this theologically reconciliation. So we've seen three things already happening on the cross. Jesus is our sacrifice, Jesus is our propitiation, and Jesus is our reconciliation. These are all dynamite, absolutely good truths. Fourth, in the cross, we, we are in bondage to sin. We are in bondage to the kingdom of Satan. We are the ones who are bound up. And Jesus, the scripture says, is our redeemer. Look at this in verse 24, Romans chapter 3, verse 24. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption is powerful and it's vivid it's the picture of someone who is in chains someone who is a slave or a prisoner right someone who deserves to be bound up sold into slavery and someone else from the outside comes in and makes a payment makes a payment so that that person who was bound up could go free It's a picture that has to do with slavery. It's a picture that has to do with prisoners, someone coming in and making a payment that purchases the freedom of another. And what you need to understand is that Jesus is that payment. We don't want to get into too much of to whom the payment was made. Scripture doesn't speak to that. Scripture doesn't talk about to whom this payment was made. Scripture simply speaks that there was a price that had to be paid for your freedom, and Jesus paid it with his life. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life up from the grave. He paid the debt for you, a debt that you couldn't pay yourself. He stepped in and paid it for you, and so we call that redemption. So we've looked at these themes of sacrifice and propitiation, reconciliation and redemption. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. A price had to be paid. Jesus paid that price with his life. That's what's going on on the cross. It's much more than just the love of God, right? It's much more than just a demonstration of how much does God love you? He loves you this much. If that's all you understand about the cross, you don't understand the cross. If when you think about the cross, all you think is God loves me this much, 
You don't really understand the cross. In fact, you can only understand that he loves you this much if you understand this other stuff that's going on. That God is just, and therefore he must punish sin. But he is also the justifier who is full of love, who is willing to provide on his own the payment for that sin. It's huge. It's huge that we understand that. God is loving, and God is just. And the two come together perfectly in the cross. One scholar says it this way, The cross is not a compromise between wrath and love. They meet beautifully and are affirmed fully there. In other words, God is so just that he demands payment for sin. And that's good. That's good that we understand that God is so just that he demands payment for sin because otherwise the whole universe would fall apart. If he just said, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to worry about that sin. I'm going to look the other way. The whole universe would fall apart. God is so just that he demands payment for sin, and that is on display in the cross. He demands the payment for sin. And at the same time, God is so loving that he provides the payment. He provides the payment with his own son. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine paying the debt that someone else owes with the blood of your own son? Can you imagine paying the debt that someone else owes, period? It's incredible that we see the love and the justice of God coming together in the cross. And by way of application, when we learn more about God, when we learn more about Christ on the cross, we'll want to praise him. And I really believe that the more we dig in to texts like these, the more we contemplate themes of reconciliation and redemption and propitiation and sacrifice, the more we dig into those things, the more we will see God for who he is. And the more we see God for who he is, the more we have an encounter with him in truth, the more we'll want to praise him. I think that's the only, the only reasonable reaction. In fact, it's the only reaction we see in scripture, right? People have an encounter with God and they see God for who he is. What happens to them? They fall down on their faces and they praise him. They see themselves to be the dirty mess that they are, and they see him to be totally righteous, and they give him glory, right? So we want to study these things so that we can praise God more. And I also believe that when we learn more about the gospel, when we understand the cross more clearly, then we'll want to share it more. Remember last week, or two weeks ago, when we were talking about justification? I said that justification is not just God cleaning us, cleaning us up. It is God giving us the righteousness of Christ, putting into our account, the positive righteousness of Christ. That's such a better picture. It's such a better understanding of the gospel. It's such better news. It should compel us to share it more. And I think the more we understand what Jesus is doing on the cross, that he is dying as our substitute, that he's our sacrifice, he's our propitiation, he's our reconciliation, he's our redeemer, I think the more we understand that, the more we'll want to share it. The more we'll want to tell other people about this Jesus died for our sins and all that that means. At the beginning of our study of Romans, we talked about the invisible part of outreach and evangelism. And the very first point we made is that we need to grow in our understanding of the gospel. That part of the reason why we don't share the gospel like we should share the gospel, part of the reason we, we don't have the zeal for evangelism that we should have, is that we don't really understand the gospel the way we should. And so we're teaching like this so that you'll understand more of the gospel, not so that you'll be able to, be able to answer trivial pursuit questions, but so that you'll go with greater zeal to share this good news. When we learn more about the gospel, we will want to share it more. 
And when we learn more about God, we will want to praise him more. And we want to praise him more. And we want to share him more, right? The second application is this. You need to be aware that the death of Christ has no benefit for a person unless they believe in him. We talked a lot today about what happened on the cross, about Jesus' sacrifice and propitiation and reconciliation and redeeming. But I want you to know that that is only, that is only for those who believe in him, who rest their whole weight on him, right? Justification is a beautiful thing. To be declared righteous is a beautiful thing. We know that it is only received by faith, and it is based on the work of Christ on the cross. If you don't believe, if you're not resting in him, trusting on him, leaning completely on him, there is no benefit, no saving benefit of the cross for you. So all of this beauty that I'm talking about, about Jesus dying in his place, Jesus bearing your sin, Jesus suffering the wrath that you deserve, if you don't trust him completely, it doesn't mean anything. So what do we do today? We invite you to trust him completely. We invite you to rest your whole weight on him, to see this as good news and say, I'm done trying to earn God's favor by my works of the law. I'm done trying to work my way up to him. I'm just going to trust in him and rest on him and depend on him and his perfect righteousness and his death on the cross. I would invite you today to trust in Jesus and be saved, to believe in Jesus and be saved to depend entirely upon his work and be saved, gloriously saved, eternally saved. Because it is only for those who believe in him that this has benefit. This whole message doesn't have benefit unless you don't trust him. So do you believe? Are you resting on him? Your full weight is resting on him. Let's stand together. Help us today as we continue to think on these themes. Help us to see you more, to know you more, because we want to respond with more praise to you. We pray also that you'll help us to understand the gospel more, to appreciate the gospel more, so that we will want to share it more so that we will share it more. That we will tell people about this amazingly good news that Jesus is sacrifice, that Jesus is propitiation, that Jesus is reconciliation, that Jesus is redeemer who paid the price for someone else's freedom, for their freedom. That we don't want to know you more. We don't want to know the gospel more so that we can answer trivia questions we want to know you more to love you more to know the gospel more to share it more and God I pray for people who are in here today who have heard us talk about the death of Christ heard us talk about the gospel heard us talk about justification and faith and propitiation but they don't trust as you've done in my life and many others in this room that you would teach them by your spirit about sin 
teach them by your spirit about your justice and wrath against sin. Teach them by your spirit about the cross. justice coming together on the cross for the redemption of men. Give them a response of repentance and faith. Bring them to the end of their, themselves so that they can trust in you and you alone for salvation. And God, we pray that you do this not primarily for their sake, but for your sake, for your kingdom, for your glory, for your honor. In Christ's name we pray.